All right. Good. Good evening. I hope uh, that this evening we have uh, we have enough time to be a little interactive in what we're doing tonight. So I'm going to start with a quiz. Who knows what the word iconoclast means? Iconoclast. Matt. Uh, means to destroy images. An image destroyer or an image breaker. That is correct, and it's also that's the literal meaning. Uh, and then it's come in English to also refer to anybody who's looking to tear down uh, traditions and sacred cows. So, Matt, I'm going to send you a copy of Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, we do not have any in stock today, but I was looking at this book because you'd be a lot better off um, reading chapter four of this book rather than listening to me tonight uh, as he... <laughs> As he, talks, as he talks about images. Uh, we'll make sure it's a new one, not this one, which I think is from 1967. But um, How many people here have read Knowing God? Quite a few people. And if you haven't, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, it, it, it pretends to be this, this wonderful little devotional book, and really it's, it's a systematic theology hidden behind a, a simple devotional book. Uh, and it's just really uh, powerful and useful stuff. So an iconoclast is one who destroys images or icons. Uh, and there are two places in the history of the church where we have seen uh, iconoclasm, where people have chosen to destroy images. And I'll talk about those uh, in just a few minutes. So uh, we are going through the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the first commandment, which is? No, no, no other God uh, before the Lord your God, before Yahweh your God. We learned who we were supposed to be worshiping. And this week we're going to look at how we should worship. Um, and we're going to be looking at Exodus 20 verse 4. Um, how shall we worship this Lord our God? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." So if you look at verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Um, you can walk away with the idea that sculpture is um, prohibited. Um, the ESV has carved image, which I think uh, the King James has graven image. Does anybody have the New American Standard or NIV? What do you have there? Idol. Idol. Um, and actually, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it literally uses the word idol. We get it from that Greek word uh, that is used there. It makes it very clear in verse 5 that the reason this prohibition is in place is so that you don't create things that you worship. Um, and we can actually see that in the Old Testament itself. There actually are a few occasion, occasions where God does tell his people to create images, but not for worship. Um, so, for example, in 1 Kings 7.25, God tells Solomon to build oxen 
that he's going to put the big basin called the sea, which is basically this big washing area in the temple. So there actually were uh, images of oxen in the temple. And there were also images of the cherubim, which were winged beings. Um, So it's not a universal prohibition against images, but you're not supposed to worship them. Um, The other example where God told them to create an image was in Numbers 21. Does anybody know or remember what that story was? The snake. That's right. The people were in the wilderness and they were being attacked by fiery serpents. And bizarrely, the Lord says, hey, make this bronze serpent and put it on a stick. And then whenever people get bit, have them look at it. Um, Interestingly enough, later on in the New Testament, there's a reference back uh, that uh, makes us think that this is a, a type of Christ and how we look to Christ who is who has uh, been lifted up on the cross. But does anybody remember what happened to that snake on a stick? It became an idol. That's right. They had to destroy it because, uh, later on because the people started to worship it. That's the human tendency, is to start to uh, worship these images. Um, the classic example, of course, is... Moses is up on Mount Sinai, literally receiving the Ten Commandments. And what do the people do while he's literally receiving the Ten Commandments? They make a golden calf. They can't wait for him to come down the mountain to tell them what to do. They're going to go ahead and do it their way and make a golden calf. And what what does Aaron say when the golden calf is made? Behold your God who brought you out of Egypt. In the ESV, it says gods. Uh, In the New King James and in the NSAB, NASB, it says God. Um, Those of you who know Hebrew know that God is often in the plural, uh, even when it's talking about the one God. And you can translate it either way there. But they had just seen all the miracles that God had done to bring them out of Israel. And they've been told... (laughs) You know, here's the God. He's up on the mountain. You can't see him, but he's up there. He's making lights and he's making noise, but you can't come close. You can't see him, but wait, I'm going to go bring down the law. And they can't wait. And they build a calf and say, behold your God, because they need something to look at. Um, And then, of course, when the kingdom splits, when Solomon dies and it divides into Israel and Judah, the first thing that the new king of Israel does is to make sure his people don't need to go back to Jerusalem to worship. And so he puts a bull on one side of his territory and he puts a bull on the other side of his territory so that wherever you are in Israel, there's an an idol of a bull that you can go and worship at your convenience. And part of what that points to is the idea that God's people want to be like everybody else, right? The Egyptians had gods, and they had idols. Um, The people in Canaan, they had gods, and they had idols. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that we today have lots of different kinds of idols. But in any case, we want to be like the other people. But God has said, that's not the way I want to be worshipped. And it's a reminder that 
we need to look to God for how we are supposed to worship him. Of course, that's in the Old Testament, um, but there's plenty of opportunity for discussion of idols in the New Testament. Um, 1 John, a lovely book in the New Testament. It's all about God's love and our love for one another. And how does it end? What's its very last verse? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It almost comes out of nowhere. He doesn't really talk about idols. He talks about how we're supposed to love God. God loves us. We're supposed to love each other. And then his final word is, keep yourselves from idols. Um, In Acts uh, 15, in the the first council of Jerusalem, the very first time the church has sort of come together and made a decision, um, Paul is there advocating for spreading the gospel to the Gentiles but not applying uh, the law of the Old Testament to the Gentiles. And the uh, council at Jerusalem makes a decision. And that is that we don't want to trouble the Gentiles, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And so it focuses on two things, one of which is idolatry and the ceremonies around it, uh, which often involve animals and blood and strangulation and those kinds of things, and sexual immorality as two things that we're going to highlight that say, yes, all those laws in the Old Testament don't apply, but these are really important and we need to make sure that those are at the forefront of what they're doing. And Paul has a little bit, uh, as the church grows and there are continued discussions, um, Paul has uh, some more nuanced discussion as, as Ben has talked about as he's gone through 1 Corinthians. And they talk about what do you do, what does it mean that you stay away from food polluted by idols? Uh, and he did a great uh, sermon about that. Uh, and Paul wants to argue on one hand that, right, you know, we're about faith. And there are no, these idols aren't anything. They aren't real gods. They're false gods. But, so you you can't really be, you know, hurt by them because they're not real. But there's also that important need to separate from those idols because other people believe that they are real. And other people, um, if you treat those idols as if they're real, then... It confuses people. It goes back to that idea that you're like other people that, oh, they believe these are other, other, other gods too. And so certainly uh, we have tried to stay away from idols uh, as Christians, uh, but the church has struggled with this over the years. Back to my question about what an iconoclast is. Um, we've had two major incidents of iconoclasm uh, in church history. And the first of these occurred in the Eastern Church, um, what is now uh, what we think of as Eastern Orthodoxy. And there were a lot of struggles uh, in the Byzantine Empire over whether or not you should have icons. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Greek Orthodoxy, uh, but they are famous for having icons, which are uh, pictures that they use as devotional items. Uh, And there was a battle. And literally there were times in which people came through and destroyed the icons. They were iconoclast. Uh, they destroyed it. But ultimately the church in the east decided that this was something that they would continue to do. Uh, and they continue to do today. And if you've been looking at any of the reports um, 
from Ukraine uh, and the war going on there. I saw one the other day where this icon had been recovered from a bombed out building. Um, people were looking at it as semi-miraculous that it was protected, but that's a major part continuing in the Eastern uh, Orthodox religion. And then, of course, it's really hard to outdo the Catholics uh, and their images. If you've ever been to a, uh, a cathedral in Europe, it can just be overwhelming, uh, the number of images there. And if you go into cathedral, in addition to sort of the front of the cathedral where the priest might give a homily or a sermon, there often be dozens of these little baby chapels where it's essentially they're blocked off sections and they'll have a statue of a saint or a painting of Jesus uh, or some other thing and there'll be candles in front of it and there'll be a kneeling row and people can come into each of these areas and, and, and look at these images and it's supposed to focus um, focus their uh, understanding of God. Um, part of what they said they were doing you know, back in the Middle Ages was people couldn't read and so you'd see the stories of the Bible acted out in these images. But when the Reformation came along, there were um, some folks who again became iconoclast and literally went in some of the Catholic churches and started destroying the images uh, because they considered it to be sacrilegious. Um, looking at those images, um, what's the first thing you think about in terms of, of images of God that we may have seen in Western art. Uh, what, do we, what do we think of as God the Father? Big man, gray beard. Big man, gray beard. Uh, if Michelangelo is to be believed, naked and muscular. <laughs> um, what are the descriptions in the Bible of God the Father? Invisible. Some, now, it, to be fair, sometimes the Bible anthropomorphizes, i.e. Makes, makes him look like a man. When Isaiah sees him, what does he see? He sees his robe. He sees the, he sees the train. He like, sees the very bottom of the robe. Uh, and, you know, nothing above the knees. <laughs> um, what does Moses see when he gets to see? A little bit of the back. Um, you know, there's some pictures in Revelation where it talks about, you know, seeing God sitting on the throne. And what is the description? It's basically big bright lights above him, a big shiny glowy thing where his face is, and then lots of, again, miraculous shiny things at his feet. The idea is you're not really seeing him, but you're just overwhelmed by this, this presence. Um, I don't know what Jesus looks like. But he's not blonde. I'm 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 100% certain he's not blonde. He doesn't look like that. You know, you know you know that you know that picture that you've seen a thousand times, which is the same guy. You know that people hang in their houses as a picture of Jesus. He doesn't look like that. Um, how does the uh, New Testament describe Jesus? In his man form. Yeah, so actually, actually, I, actually, I think that's the Old Testament proph prophesying forward about Jesus. It doesn't say anything. 
doesn't say anything. Um, and at best, we have the idea from the Old Testament that the suffering servant is going to look like nothing and might even be homely. Right? There, there's, there's nothing in the New Testament that says, Jesus came into town and people said, look at him. <laughs> they said, listen to him. It was what he said and what he taught, not what he looked like. He wasn't like Saul. Uh, he wasn't like the tall brothers of David. Um, he was there to be heard. So the two questions that we're supposed to answer as part of this series on each of the commands is how does Jesus fulfill this? And how does this relate to us? Um, and so how does Jesus fulfill this command in the New Testament? Uh, he fulfills it in his person in one respect. The Bible says that he is the, uh, the visible image of the invisible God um, who he is. He, he doesn't need to make any uh, image um, because he is the image. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, we, we see in the Old Testament, God tells us not to build images, right? In the Old Testament, has God made images? People. Right? We are God's image, not a bull, not a statue. We're the image of God, and he's placed us in his world uh, to lead as his representatives. And Jesus is the perfect man who's the perfect image of God. As Colossians 1.15 and following say, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he is the perfect man, the perfect image of God. And he is the only way that the invisible God can be made visible. And in him... Not in any image, not in any idea. God was pleased to dwell. And in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about Moses going in to see God and having to cover a veil over his face so that when he came out, um, they would not see the glory of God. But in 2 Corinthians 3.16, it says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. We're being conformed to Jesus. His image is our image is being made into his image through all that he has done for us. So how does this relate to us? Um, 
One thing I already mentioned is, you know, uh, other Christians have decided to use images uh, in how uh, they help people focus on the things of God, how they, peop- how they try to take things that are abstract and make them concrete, be easier for them to understand. Um, we don't do that. Um, but isn't it true that those kinds of things can be helpful to get people to, to focus on these kinds of things? Um, isn't it human nature that people latch on to those concrete things uh, in order to help them understand? I mean, we even use, you know, uh, real-life examples in our sermons to try to connect the abstract ideas of Scripture down into something concrete we can understand. I think it is true. I think it is human nature to, to you know, actually say, all right, I can see this, I can, can put some feeling into it, helps me focus. But the problem is God knows that. He knows that's part of our human nature, and he told us not to do it. Because, you know, as we had in the example of the snake and in all these other things, it leads to idolatry. Uh, in fact, in chapter 4 of Knowing God, J.I. Packer makes a very strong argument that we should be very careful of, of even trying to do, you know, representational art of Jesus in any fashion um, because of <clears throat> um, the issues about, you know, all too many people do think that Jesus is a thin guy who's really nice and has blonde curly hair. And for some reason, in Renaissance art, he's the only guy with long blonde curly hair. All the other ones have short hair and it's usually darker and he's usually taller and right. None of that is anything from the Bible. That's us trying to do what we do, which is to turn our ideas of God into something that we've created and that this is what we think would look good. And just as we in the West have turned Jesus into this Nordic-looking white man, there are you know, people in other cultures who they want Jesus to look like them, right? And so you know, there are uh, liberationist theology uh, theologians who say, hey, we should have pictures of Jesus as a black man because, you know, he speaks to uh, those who are downtrodden and the people of Africa who have been, been through all of this. And I don't think that Jesus was a sub-Saharan African any more than he was a Scandinavian. Uh, he was a Middle Eastern Jew. And we shouldn't try to put our own conceptions on what he is. Um, we're, we're careful about how we use images in our worship here, right? We don't have any statues of Jesus in this main hall. Um, at times, we've had flags up in the front, um, and we've removed those as, as we've thought about it over, the time, over time. We had an American flag uh, up in the front, and we moved that out of that location. We had a Christian flag. What could be wrong with that? We moved that out of the location. Um, we try to keep that space focused on the word, on God, and not introducing these images. Uh, there was a time when we uh, had a, uh, not a Christmas tree, but a Christmon tree, which was supposed to be a way to have a Christmas tree without calling it a Christmas tree and keeping it a little less flashy uh, and having sort of Christian element on it only. We don't do that anymore. You know, we've thought about that, and we don't want to introduce um, those kinds of things. Uh, when I first came to the church, the stained glass window wasn't up there. 
we had a wonderful older lady who donated money for a stained glass window. And the original version of, of what was suggested by her and her representative was one of those classical pictures of Jesus praying in the garden um, in the very traditional Nordic Jesus kind of way. Uh, and we decided not to do that. Um, now that said, should we have done what we did? Should we have you know, the cross up there on a stained glass window? Is that acting as an image? Um, someone who's a member now has asked some very pointed, penetrating questions about why we have that dove at the top, which represents the Holy Spirit. Is that appropriate? Um, how many people knew that there was a dove at the top of the stained glass window? Okay. So, I mean, I think these are, you know, questions that uh, we ought not to be afraid uh, to answer or think about. Um, but remember that uh, God is invisible. God the Father is, the in- is invisible. God the Spirit is invisible. And although God uh, the Son was made visible here on earth. Uh, The scripture made a point of not telling us anything about him, and he is now not visible to us. Uh, He will eventually be visible to us, as will the uh, amazing, miraculous, ineffable, hard-to-put-into-speech vision of what God looks like. Uh, If you see any descriptions of God in scripture, it's always like, it just makes a crazy picture because it's, it's just trying to show glory and they can't describe the glory that they're seeing um, and so we have that to look forward to and in the meantime we're uh, called to worship in spirit and truth uh, not dependent on images uh, not going along with the world or even human nature which makes us want to you know have things that we can touch and put our hands on and know that we can trust in God We can trust in the God that we don't see. Uh, We can have faith, uh, even though uh, we do not see. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect man. We are thankful that he was also the perfect image of you, that he was fully God, And Father, we pray that you would give us faith uh, to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, faithfully, even knowing that as we cannot see now, we can trust in your promises which have been fulfilled uh, throughout the ages uh, and recorded for us to know uh, that we might trust in you. And Father, we look forward to that day when we will truly see you. And that we will be in your presence in a way that we can't even imagine now. That will make any feeble human attempt at trying to figure out what you look like, look like stick figures on a wall. Won't even be, not even conceivable in our current bodies. And Father, we thank you for uh, the great gift that we have uh, in Jesus Christ that we have been saved uh, to know you. And Father, we do pray that you would keep us from idols, uh, whether they be 
statues or pictures or whether they just be ideas uh, that we love to have our hands on, whether it be uh, goods, uh, whether it be money, uh, whether it be physical pleasure, all the different ways that we put physical things above the spiritual things. And Father, we pray that you will keep us uh, to the end uh, faithful and from polluting ourselves with idols. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.